Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. Today's topic is the N-word. We are joined by Amber Webb Booker, who is a lawyer by trade, but her true passion is empowering people through taking difficult or intimidating information and making it accessible, enjoyable, and understandable. And that's exactly what she helps us do in regards to today's topic as we dive into the past and present history of the N-word. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So we have a very special guest here with us today who is going to help us with a very sensitive topic. I can't think of anyone better to have this discussion with. Miss Amber Webb Booker, she's an attorney. She is a voice for the people. She's a podcaster. She's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, a part of the Divine Nine. <laughs> she's from Dallas, has a legacy long family legacy in in the city of Dallas. She's just all things to all people. I I love Amber, and I'm so excited to have you. I've been wanting you to jump on here for the past year now, and so we finally get to talk to you. What's up, sis? Hey, y'all. Thank y'all so much for inviting me. I'm so excited. I have been a fan since the beginning, and I am so excited to be here. Thank y'all for having me. Thank you. Man, this is such a blessing. I remember meeting you at an event that we had in Duncanville. It was a very intimate space. And just hearing you speak was just so powerful and life-changing. I've never forgot. I, I, I still like cling to your words and just everything that you, and I follow you. Like every time you have something to say, I'm listening because you, you're one of those people that can speak for other people. Like when we don't have the words, Amber has the words. And so I'm excited about how you are going to help us navigate through this discussion on the N-word. We're going to be talking That's about the so N-word. That's so funny. What's that? That's so funny that you say that because that night we met, I don't even know if you remember this, but the night we met, you prayed for me. Aww. I don't know if you remember that. I, do. I was actually, I was going through a divorce. And you prayed for me that night. And I cried like a baby. I like snot face, snot nose, cried all over that lady's house. And that is still one of the, that was one of the most powerful nights. That was one of the first times in that whole process where I felt like I had met people who understood. And Mm. I will always be grateful for you. For that night because oh, some chains geez. broke off me that night. So Praise I love God. you always. I love you always. Always. Same. Feeling is so mutual. Always. I'm honored to pray for you and with you, sis. So when I'm interviewing specifically African-Americans on the podcast, one question I always ask is, who are you? Because so oftentimes we limit and restrict people to what they do in the limelight or, you know, you're a podcaster, you're an attorney, and you're this voice on social media in, you know, in Dallas. But there's so much more. There's so many more dimensions to you. And so who is Amber Webb Booker? So honestly, all of that for me boils down to one thing. I'm somebody who I don't like people around me to be confused. And that was the impetus for how I started doing everything I'm doing today. When I started doing trial work, I was amazed sitting in courtrooms, like watching lawyers, like, I'm like, nobody talks like this. Like, why, why are y'all sitting in here? Like, these people are very clearly confused. Like, you have to know that nobody understands the words that are coming out of your mouth, right? Like, People don't injure their lumbar spine. They hurt their lower back, right? And people don't have collisions. They have car wrecks. 
and <laughs> they don't have, you know, traumatic brain injury. You know, like I started approaching the work like, you know, why can't we talk to people about these cases like people talk about them at dinner and right. how people talk about it and explain it at their family reunions and when they're explaining it to their family and friends, like what happened to them? Yeah. And that's how I started approaching my work. And then when I was at church, I would be sitting listening to ministers and teachers talk about the Bible. And I'm like, don't nobody know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> what are you literally talking about? Nobody talks like this. Like, this is not resonating with people. And so I started teaching Bible studies for the same reason. Like, nobody wow. talks like this. And people would understand it a lot more clearly if you would just speak about it in plain English in ways that people could understand it. And the same things would happen with like, you know, trials, you know, high profile trials would happen on TV and people would reach out to me, you know, what does that mean? You know, what does this mean? And so, you know, after a while I'm like, listen, I can't keep responding to all these questions. So I'm gonna make a video when I get off work so I can answer all y'all's questions. Right. And so, I just started realizing that I think there is a way that our society very intentionally makes information inaccessible, Mm. where we make knowledge difficult for people to comprehend as a way to disempower people and to render them voiceless and dependent on certain institutions in certain systems wow. and honestly as a way to oppress people honestly right. and I realized honestly that I was no better than anybody else if I knew what was happening and I didn't even in my own little corner of the world even if it was only 10 or 15 people if I didn't do something about it and so I just started figuring out small ways that I could just talk to people in regular ways about things that they just always assumed they could never understand, whether it was laws or the Bible or political issues. And, you know, it resonated with people. And I just wanted to look at everybody I could in the face and see, see, you can understand this. There ain't nothing wrong with you. They are the problem. You ain't the problem. They are doing this on purpose to make you think you can't understand it. You can absolutely understand. You know, because knowledge really is power. If you know, you can make a choice. That is really powerful. And I think it's a perfect segue into the topic that we're going to discuss, which is the N-word. Because there's so much convolution and so much baggage to this word and even the oppressive way in which Black people are policed in our own usage of it or our non-usage of it. And so it's a perfect segue. Garen, who is our resident researcher, like he is so excellent at pulling data. And I feel like he's the perfect example of what it looks like for a white person to do their own work and learn. And so it's great that whenever we meet, I don't ever really have to bring anyone up to speed because Garen, he comes with the receipts. And so he's prepared some... He has some notes that I feel like are worth sharing. And you talked about this offline before we started filming or recording, that it's great that white people who are doing the work would be a part of the conversation in that way. But explain that. Talk about that a little bit more because you explained it so much better than I did. Well, one of the things I was saying is in the context that, you know, one of the things that white supremacy teaches white people is that nothing is off limits to them, right? And so... I think that's just kind of one of the difficult things about the N-word is that it is difficult for white people to sort of hold this notion that there is something that they can be proximate to that they cannot consume, right? And so one of the hard parts about this conversation is white people having or finding a way to engage it from a historical perspective with a sense of humility, willing to listen, willing to learn, recognizing that this is not a place where they are authorized or entitled to be a dispositive voice on what is or is not appropriate or what can or cannot be done. 
And right. one of the examples I gave is it's it's the same way that, you know, when someone who is previously been victimized by somebody creates or offers a space for amends to be made, the abuser is not there to be a dispositive voice. They are there in a posture of humility, in a space to receive what the person who has been victimized is there to offer. And that person's choice about what they choose to do now that they are free and past the abuse is not up for debate or critique or judgment by the abuser. Yeah, They are simply there in that space because they've been invited and they should receive whatever they are given, you know, and however that person chooses to move forward in the aftermath of what happens should be what the person who is there to make amends and atonement accepts. And I think part of the problem and the ways that the wires get crossed when we have the conversation about the N-word is that people aren't clear about what their position is at the table and the posture that they should be taking. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why the conversation can go off the rails. Right. But then also... Black people get the gaslighting. We get gaslit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's a huge part of the problem is that there's not a posture of humility. There's not, Black people are not even given a space at the table in the conversation. And so, excellent point. So, Garen, you want to? Yeah, so I'll start by just reminding the audience, our reason to exist as people is to love. That's the purpose for which God made us is to love others. And so in this conversation, just recognize from the front end, the sensitivity of it from the fact that a lot of black people have been traumatized by this word. And so for white people, sometimes I think white people can go into like almost like a debate or argumentative mode, talking about facts and lose the fact that you might actually be using Arguments in language that for you are just abstract arguments, but for black people listening, it can be traumatic or re-traumatizing or triggering of past trauma. And so kind of to what you're saying, to your point, Amber, is just to approach, really white people don't typically need to be in this conversation at all other than just to listen. And my hope here is just to bring research from black voices into the conversation. So I'm not really wanting to share my opinions, but to elevate black voices that have told the story of this word through history. And just to remember in the conversation, the whole point of our existence is to love. It's not to even to understand. If you're white and you don't understand why is it that white people can't use the N-word and black people do, it's like a thing a lot of white people get hung up on. It's like your goal in the world is not to understand. Your goal is to love and so to approach with that being the, the center, the prime thing that you do is you love and you don't traumatize people, you care for people, and then you listen and over time you can learn to understand. But with that kind of on background, I want to just go through some history of how the N-word has formed and been used through time. The etymology of the word, the N-word is derived from the Latin word for the color black, but its actual meaning has evolved through time, shaped by and reacting against white supremacy. The author Andrew Hacker wrote that among all slurs, the N-word stands alone in its power to tear at one's insides. So in the 1700s, kind of real early on in the development, there were multiple early forms of it where it would be spelled in slightly different ways, but the N-word in, in those days appeared in formal writing and was not recognized, at least by white people at the time, as improper. It was used in just normal conversation. Its evolution from then to now has not been very well cataloged. But what we do know is that by 1837, there was a treatise on black people in the United States by Josea Easton, who wrote that, quote, the N-word is an opprobrious term employed to impose contempt upon blacks as an inferior race. The term in itself would be perfectly harmless were it used only to distinguish one class of society from another, but it is not used with that intent. It flows from the fountain of purpose to injure. Garen, when you just said it, you know, it wasn't used as an improper word, that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't mean something not nice. Can you explain that? Like, 
So basically, yeah. this guy in the 1800s is just writing that it actually does mean something mean. It's not like it didn't mean that yeah. before. So in the 1700s, white people would use it in front of other white people without thinking this is a negative word to use. That said, though, there was so much white supremacy and racism back then that that doesn't mean it wasn't problematic. It just means that white people would use it and throw it out in That's uh, what they formal thought. conversation. Right. And, and also, there were more than black slaves, it, it, particularly before the, before the 1800s. As the transatlantic slave trade became more and more prolific, the decline of non-African or non-black slaves came in tandem with that. But when the word first started to be used, it became you it was used primarily to distinguish between black and non-black slaves because there were non-black slaves initially that were, you know, mixed in with black slaves. They were not treated the same and they were not chattel for life in the same way as African slaves. But the word actually originated to distinguish between the two types of slaves. And so in that sense, the word was not used in the same way that we associate it now. It was used to distinguish initially between the two types of slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to your point, there was white supremacy was still a thing back then. And the two types of slaves weren't viewed the same. Uh, part of the historical, what's behind that, white people couldn't always pay their passage to come across to, right. to the right. to the new earth. So they would take on seven years of indentured service as basically payment for passage to come over. So they'd say like, okay, I'll, you'll pay for me to come over to the new world and then I will work for you for seven years. But then white people would oftentimes run away. And when they ran away, they could blend in with other white people Absolutely. and they could just basically skip out on their seven years of service. But for black people, they couldn't blend in as well. And so black indentured servants or slaves moving forward a little in time had a much harder time blending in so they couldn't run away as well. And so then the whole system shifted over time to the point where white people just weren't used at all in slavery anymore and it became completely black slavery. And then you see the racial views hardened around that economic reality. Because they had to make a distinction because black enslaved people were seen as taking white jobs from poor white people. And so there was a lot of some of the same things that we see today where people get accused of taking jobs and taking opportunity. But it was America taking advantage and exploiting human beings Mm -hmm. to have free labor. And so there was this division, this construct that was created where we have to make the lesser European people, you know, the, the lower class, feel good about enslavement, black enslavement. And so we're going to give them power, this much power. We're going to give them power to basically look down, have someone to look down their noses at. And we see that in culture right now as the insurrection has happened and how they employ poor white people or uninformed white people to do their bidding, to do the bidding of basically white wealth. Yeah. Uh, And to the point you were making, I mean, really, both of you all are making about the ways that race and economics play together. One of the ways that this was driven and fueled was because the insurance industry refused to continue to insure indentured servants for that very reason, Hmm. because they became a high risk, because they would come in, they would not continue their indentured servitude, and the masters will file the claims and the insurance companies would have to pay them. However, with the black slaves, even the ones who ran away, there was a much higher return. And one of the reasons why the Fugitive Slave Act was such a problem and one of the reasons why the insurance industry was so invested in it is because it was a risk analysis, right? They wanted Nobody was going to continue to pay premiums on a slave if once they ran away and got to a certain point in the United States and they were free, if they wasn't going to come back. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting is that this was all fueled by that sort of insidious way that economics and racism combine 
both in the ways that we acculturate people, like Katina's talking about how people perceive themselves, but also in the ways that we commodify and profit off of people because a lot of this was just driven by profit dollars. Yep. They shifted the, the value over to black people because the insurance companies wouldn't insure white indentured servants anymore because they ran away mm -hmm. and they couldn't get them back. And they, they weren't going to pay the, the policies anymore because it was too high of a risk. Yeah. And it's amazing what people will do for money and the ways that they will dehumanize other people when there's like a profit motive there to yeah. do so. Absolutely. And I think we see that today. Probably the most clear example, I think, is just the way people talk about immigrants coming to America and the whole, they'll take our jobs. When in reality, the majority of economists think that immigrants are a net benefit to the U.S. economy because they don't just take jobs, they also create demand for products and services that create more jobs and spur other economic activity. And a lot of the jobs that they take are jobs that are most white people don't want to be taking anyways. Right. And so they're a net benefit to the economy, but that's not the way they're spoken of because people, if they have a profit motive or worried about their job, they will backfill their worldview to make other people less in order to kind of defend what they think is theirs. And that's what happened. White people, as slavery was becoming chattel slavery, white people dehumanized black people to justify what they were doing for profit motives. And so the, the actual planters, they wanted slaves because they wanted the money that they would make from them. And then a lot of the poor white people who didn't actually own slaves they wanted to avoid job competition. And so they also kind of supported the system so that they could be further up in line to get better jobs. And so then they did that by dehumanizing black people. And the N-word was a tool all throughout that history to dehumanize black people. So in the 1800s, even children were taught from a very young age to ridicule and make fun of black people by calling them the N-word. So children were threatened in school that if they didn't behave, they would be worse than N-words, or they'd be carried off by the old N-word, or that they would sit in the N-word seat. They would have an N-word seat for wow. white classes where the kids would sit if they were in trouble. Also, a lot of early nursery rhyme songs that we still have today, yep. uh, actually even just Radiolab just did a their most recent episode as of recording, was an episode on old nursery rhymes and how the N-word was prominent in them. So even children were acculturated from a young age to dehumanize black people with, with the N-word. In Frederick Douglass's autobiographical recollection, he talks about a period and recounts a conversation with his former master from when he was a slave and how he said, learning would spoil the best N-word in the world. Hmm. And that wasn't just a unique phrase that his master kind of came up with. That was actually a popular phrase that I think appears hundreds of times from what I've read in literature from that era. It was a common phrase that was said, learning would spoil the best N-word. So that was a common view in a way that white people dehumanized black people in their own minds to feel okay with what they were doing. Well, and that's why reading and writing was prohibited. Enslaved people mm -hmm. were not allowed to read. They were not allowed to write. For the most part, in, when working in the fields and when working as enslaved people, they could sing. But because of our ingenuity and innovation and creativity, we would communicate via singing. We communicate braiding our hair. We communicate. We find ways to talk and exist in plain sight. Mm -hmm. So moving into the 1900s, in 1901, Senator Benjamin Tillman spoke of a meeting between Booker T. Washington and Roosevelt. Roosevelt actually had Washington over for a meal, which in the day that was like a, a first, a black person eating at the White House. And so Senator Benjamin Tillman said, quote, the action of President Roosevelt of entertaining that N-word will necessitate our killing of thousands of N-words in the South before they will learn their place again. Wow. Said that just publicly on the record. Yep. In 1919, Coleman Livingston Blease successfully won the governorship of South Carolina by mocking his opponent, his white opponent, saying, You people who want social equality with the Negro, vote for Jones. You men who have N word children, vote for Jones. You who have an N word wife in your backyard, vote for Jones. 
And that was in 1919, and again, he successfully won the governorship of South Carolina with that being his, his campaign. Wow. Richard White was the author of The Ethics of Living Jim Crow. And he, he was like a black journalist, and he recounted his time in the South during Jim Crow. And he said that he got a job in Mississippi at an optical company, and it was going well until he asked the 17-year-old white associate to tell him more about the business. And the 17-year-old responded, what are you trying to do, N-word, get smart? And he said, no, I ain't trying to get smart. The young guy, the 17-year-old responded, well, don't. If you know what's good for you, N-word, you think that you're white, don't you? No, sir. This is white men's work around here. You better watch yourself. So here's this white boy who's his junior, but speaking to him so disrespectfully. And I mean, this would have been the typical response by any white person back then to feeling like a black person would potentially infringe on their supremacy and their ability to get the good jobs and run the good businesses. There's just an implied threat throughout all of Jim Crow. The N-word was used to reinforce and justify the racial caste system. And when black people heard it, it signaled that their life could be taken because the people who said it were generally willing to kill black people if they stepped outside of the racial caste system. It was this constant reminder. And in that, it was traumatic because it's this constant reminder that your life is not valuable to us. We don't see you as human and we're willing to take your life if you cross the racial caste system that, that's formed. So then moving forward into the 1930s to the 1960s, Benjamin Jefferson Davis defended a client in 1932, and a hostile witness referred to the client by the N-word repeatedly. And then Davis objected, saying the term was negative and prejudicial. The judge responded that he didn't know whether it was, but he would instruct the witness to refer to the man as darky instead. When an early anti-lynching bill came up, black people in the House of Representatives cheered because a representative from Wisconsin corrected a colleague from Mississippi. The representative from Mississippi was claiming that black people and black criminality was responsible for lynchings. So the black people cheered, and then multiple white Southern representatives of the U.S. House yelled out, sit down, N-words. Georgia Governor Eugene Talmage swore during the time of school desegregation, so right after Brown versus Board of Education, he said, before God, friend, the N-words will never go to a school that is white while I am governor. In Mississippi, white judges routinely ask black defendants, whose N-word are you? Um, wow. Reporting a homicide, the Hattiesburg Progress, so a newspaper publication wrote, only another dead N-word, that's all. A Supreme Court justice, James Clark McReynolds, referred to Howard University as the N-word university. In the civil rights movement, white allies who joined protests were frequently called N-word lovers. Uh, during the Freedom Rides, one bus driver brought a bus full of Freedom Riders to, to a crowd of white racists. And he gleefully anticipated the beatings that would come, saying... Well, here they are. I've brought them some N-words and N-word lovers. He just watched the, the white mob begin to beat his passengers. During that time, the N-word was also used with a twist to disparage other people. Arabs were called sand N-words. Yeah. Irish were called the N-words of Europe. Yeah. Palestinians were called the N-words of the Middle East. Bowling balls were called N-word eggs. Games of craps were called N-word golf. Watermelons were called N-word hams. Rolls of $1 bills were called N-word rolls. Bad yeah. luck was called N-word luck. And gossip was called N-word news. So it's just used a negative connotation just in even unrelated parts of conversation and discourse in society in order to perpetuate racism. Malcolm X's high school teacher, we, we did an episode on Malcolm X, and some of you will remember his high school teacher told him, when Malcolm said that he wanted to be a lawyer, his teacher, who otherwise liked him and encouraged him, said, you have to be realistic about being an N-word and tried to push him into a, a lower vocation. Yep. Muhammad Ali refused to be drafted into the war in Vietnam, saying, no Viet Cong ever called me N-word. Yep. Jackie Robinson, when he reported to the Brooklyn Dodgers minor league team, the team's manager earnestly asked the owner if he really thought N-words were human beings. 
you know, asked in a way like surprised that he thought that they were. Robinson had to deal with constant racist insults from the opposing dugouts. And in one episode in 1947, the Philadelphia Phillies called him an N-word and told him to go back to the cotton fields or to the jungles. The journalist Carl Rowan toured the South in 1951, and he tried to buy a newspaper in a white waiting room because the colored waiting room was all out of the newspapers. So as he went to complete the transaction over in the white waiting room, the manager rushed over to stop him, and Rowan complained that under the separate but equal theory of segregation, he should be able to buy any item in the colored waiting room that was available in the white waiting room. The manager said that the red cap would have to go over and get the newspaper for him and bring it over. And he responded, the red cap, he's darker than I am. What's the logic there? The manager said, he's in uniform. And then he shot back, what if I were in uniform? The uniform of the United States Navy, saying that he was a veteran. And the man, the manager responded, you'd still have to go where N-words belong. Hmm. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done you are still less than human, is, is what he's saying there. So it's crazy, just hearing some of this history, it's just crazy because this was all a part of the campaign to dehumanize, demoralize black people and to put them, make distinctions between black people and white people and just even building the construct of whiteness And not only were black people enslaved, but it's almost like in order for white conscious to be pure, you have to make this distinction of these people being less than because otherwise you have to see them as human beings. You have to see them as made in the image and likeness of God. And you can't do that and then enslave someone. You can't do that and rape someone. You can't do that and sodomize someone. You can't do that and start breeding little girls, sex trafficking little girls at, you know, as soon as they start their menstrual cycle. And so you have to make these distinctions that are rooted in hatred and rooted in just this promotion of superiority. But what's really interesting is that is the way that black people, we just keep coming. We keep striving, we keep living, we keep pushing. We're standing on each other's shoulders as we push our culture forward, as we push the, the country forward, as we advocate and stand and live and breathe and hold space and all the things. We take this word that was meant to be something completely negative, of course, and you start to see it in our art and in our expression. When they did... The, the slave narratives, and they interviewed enslaved people all over the country to get an account of what enslavement was like for them. You'll read where people use the N-word, black people use the N-word. And some of that is just indoctrination and conditioning. It happened with white people, but it also happened with us. And so you begin to kind of take on the ideologies and the thoughts and the expressions of the oppressed. But then I think about Zora Neale Hurston specifically. She's my Sarah. I love Zora Neale Hurston, one of my favorite authors. She went on an ethnographic folklore fieldwork thing where she went and traveled and she would go. And this is to the backdrop of the Harlem Renaissance. At one point where black people, we were trying so hard to be on the come up and prove that we were equal and so some, that, this is where some of the respectability politics enters in because we need to dress a certain way, we need to look a certain way, we need to try to show them that we are worthy. And Zora, she kind of went in reverse in that she went and found the black people who were working in the fields and picking the cotton, and she began to write their stories in their dialect. And she was highly criticized for that. And she used the language that they spoke. She was from Edenville, Florida. She's college educated, studied many languages, went to Howard University. She rubbed, showed, she, she rubbed elbows with James Baldwin and Langston Hughes, like all these people. But she had a heart for the people, just the every, not, not the upper echelons, but just everyday black people who were living in the struggle and telling their story. So you see these books and these poems written in Ebonics, black dialect, 
using the N-word and highly criticized by her her peers. But to me, it's like Zora was like the first, (laughs) one of the first rappers. I say that because she, she just took people from where they were and gave them voice and expression. So at some point, and she wasn't the first because, again, we've been conditioned, we've been, there's indoctrination. So you see it in, in the work songs, you see it in the slave songs, you see it in so much of our music and art where people just took it and reinvented it and gave it value and reclaimed it. And then we see this criticism of white people as of late, as, as of the past few decades, where rap music has been on the come up and it's become so mainstream, then it's, why are you using this word? This word is so negative. Why they're still using it at the house? Why they're still using it in front of their kids? But why are you using this word? That's so appalling. Speak to that, Amber. So I think, I think the question that they're really asking is not, why are you using this word? It's really, why can't I use the word without repute anymore? Right. Because you're using it and I've been able to use it in private and now we're profiting off of it, right? So it's interesting because one of the things that we've been talking about is the the marketing machine behind white supremacy. So that's really a lot of what the N-word was used for because if whiteness is a proxy for power, the whole social construct, right? We shed our ethnic identities and we put them in this bowl and we pick up a mantle of whiteness to create a collective to hold power. Yeah. Um, part of the way that we solidify that power is through marketing right. the denigration of those who we other by using weaponized racial language. Right. And the N-word is part of that. And so that language is not only to empower those who are the beneficiaries of the empowerment, but also to disempower those who are being oppressed, right? So it's interesting because part of the problem now is that there is some dissonance with the N-word, right? Because there is a way that some of the same things are happening. White people are still profiting off of the N-word. Ain't no black people making money off these records, by and large. These are large capitalist corporations owned by white people. Selling an image, Um, yeah. Yes, selling an image, selling a facade of... Black, liberated, wealthy people who are really, in a lot of instances, contractually enslaved to these white corporations, right? And so there is some dissonance for a lot of these white people because it's like, okay, well, the reality of it is, is that not much maybe on the factual side has changed. So we are having to, um, in some ways, parrot a facade of cultural acceptability by changing our cultural behavior when really the ways that we're showing up in society, the exploitative nature of who we are, the ways that we are still continuing to oppress and commodify and exploit and appropriate, um, (laughs) you know, appropriate black culture. None of that is really changing. Right. So some of it is dissonance. The other part of it, again, is a is a resentment at the idea that there can be boundaries in a society that are (laughs) pertinent to white people that tell white people this is something that you can't have. This is something you can't consume. This is something you can't do. And again, I think that that's especially difficult when there are other ways when that is just not true. But I also think that it is hard for white supremacy as a structure to see Black people extracting power 
from it. That's it. By taking something that it had used for so long to disempower us. And even though by and large, we might not be the primary beneficiaries of it, but we are taking it and creating subcultures and we are becoming profiteers of it in our art and in our music and in creating cultures that their children want to be a part of, that they feel, Mm -hmm. that they, you know, aspire, you know, that they are literally tanning and, and changing their bodies to be a part of. I think there is a part of them that is deeply angered by the fact that something that they had created to so deeply denigrate and humiliate us is now something that we have used that that really is a reflection of what you were speaking to earlier is a, is just a testament to who we are as people and the power with which we are able to take something so dirty and so inherently filthy and reclaim it and use it in such a way that not only is it subversive, but in, in some ways we have made it beautiful. Yes. And I just think they don't like it. They don't like it. They don't like it. And it's so interesting when you were talking about how we are benefiting. We're seeing, you know, there's in our art, in our creativity as white children, our, this whole TikTok strike, this whole TikTok dance yes. strike is a prime example where... Black children come up with these amazing dances as we've known to do, like community and cultural dance, like that's our thing. Community dance is our thing. And then white kids will come through and do the same dances, learn the dances, and monetize, get the followers. Because what do people want to see more than black people doing what we do? White people doing what we do. Everybody gets hyped off of white people doing what we do, whether it's rapping, whether it's, you know, athletics, science, anything, anything that we can do, if they can do it, and anything that's cultural to us, like the way we cook, the way we dress, the way our bodies are shaped, you know, the way we wear our hair, the 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 melon in our skin. I think about the Kardashians, which is why I just despise them, because you cannot pretend to care about blackness and about the black men that you date and the black men that you have children with and the black children that you have when you are, have monetized black womanhood knowing that that black women are not desired as much as white women putting on black body parts are desired and how they have impacted mm-hmm. the culture and monetize the long fingernails, wearing braids, the whole concept of boxer boxer braids, which didn't exist, that this woman yeah. gets to name a style, a hairstyle of ours. She names it inappropriately, yeah. and that's the name that it takes because takes yeah. on because she named it. And we've been wearing braids since the ancient mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. And so it's just white people cannot be told no. They cannot be told that you cannot do something. They cannot be told that they cannot access something. And then this whole thing about the hard G versus the soft G and how you can pronounce, how you can say the N word if you use this, use it this way versus that way. It's like, why can't you just shut up? Why can't you just not use it? Why can't you, we haven't gotten any reparations, no 40 acres, no mule, no nothing. No, nothing. Yeah. And many of our cities, our townships are underwater or highways run through them or burnt to, a, to, the, to the ground as we, you know, remember Tulsa 100 years later or the 100th year anniversary. Why can't, why can't black people own something? Why can't we own ourselves? Why can't we command our own language? And no one gets mad. I hear white people all the time saying, I'm just a redneck. You got restaurants that cater to redneck culture. You walk in, you know, to some of these places and they are just so intentional about confederacy and redneckism. No one bats an eye. But a black person reclaiming and redeeming a word that was used to oppress us, everybody's up in arms. It just... Listen, yeah. 
drives they, me crazy. They're very good at pretending like they don't understand. Right. I know. I no longer buy that. Right. We have throughout the history of the world understood how to respectfully place boundaries around things that belong exclusively to particular people groups that are not for everybody to partake in. We understand that non-Muslim people cannot go inside of Mecca. We understand that, right? right? We understand that there are certain traditional ceremonies when Jewish people die that non-Jewish people cannot partake in if you are, you know, Orthodox. Like, we, we understand we that sure there do. are certain boundaries <laughs> that unite certain people groups. And that has been true since the beginning of time. We understand as women that there are certain groups of women who are familiar with each other, that have relationships, that choose to use the B word subversively. Right. Nobody that's not. This is the only place where this issue is obfuscated and made difficult and made to seem like this is something that has not been things that people have understood since the beginning of time. And I think it hits on the thing that you talked about earlier. The truth of the matter is, is that white people know that they cannot completely appropriate black culture without the N word. And that's why they want it. Right. Because they want to completely appropriate and completely saturate the places and the spaces that we have created for ourselves both because those spaces are culturally relevant and popular, but primarily because those spaces are profitable. They know that those spaces cannot be completely appropriated without the N-word accompanying it. And that is why they want it. Girl, you just spoke all the words and that's exactly it. And the audacity of us to want to command our own presence. That mm-hmm. that just really pisses people off. And it kills me because people will be like, oh my gosh, you know, just, just, I, I can't believe anyone would use that word. I would never use, but you use the sentiment every day in your activity and the way you treat people and the microaggressive behavior. Just because you don't say the word don't mean you ain't saying the word because you're saying the word in your behavior. The word itself, you shouldn't say it, but the expression of the word through your behavior, you shouldn't say it either. It's like, check your desire to say the word, but also check your, your activity, your microaggressive caronizing, you know, your abusive behavior, your wanting to consume us. There's this whole, this whole just consumptive, it's so bizarre. And I, I smell it when I walk into a room and, you know, being a creative and people wanting to be affiliated with you because you can do something that benefits them. They seek you out. Just this consumptive behavior towards black yeah. people and blackness and all the things we do. It's like we're we're walking miracles. Your people, your your ancestors, your like the the history of this country has tried to snuff us out. And we exist. Can we be applauded and celebrated? Like you said, there are certain things that I would not do. Like, I am I have Native American ancestry. I'm not finna walk around and because I'm a black woman. My great-grandmother who helped raise me, she was half Native American. And she expressed herself through her culture. And I honor that culture. But I, be, I wouldn't be walking around trying to, yeah, I'm Cherokee. Even though I am part Cherokee, there's a respect and a reverence for something that I have, I don't have, I had in proximity, but don't have in proximity. And that's the same with, when you're talking about like, Hispanic people, they call each other, I call it the redeemed words. They use their their redeemed words, LGBTQ. They use their redeemed words. Nobody gets pissed. Nobody has anything to say. But the first time we, we use the word that we've redeemed, Everybody's up in arms, but they're but they're yeah. using the word by their actions. And it's so interesting that you bring that up. Like when people <laughs> want brownie points for doing things that they should be doing, just oh, I would never say that word. Well, that's awesome because you shouldn't. I mean, that's like right, walking yay. around saying, well, I, well, I would I would never murder anybody. Well, I mean, do you want Good. a cracker? Like, like I for mean, real? That, 
that's awesome. I mean, it and and <laughs> the implication for that when I hear somebody say something like that, well, I would never say that word is that you were entitled to say it in the first place. It's almost mm. like they are relinquishing or giving up something that they feel like they had the right to do and they are proclaiming that to get some type of affirmation to let you know that they are relinquishing something that they feel entitled to do in the first place. And that is the problem, that you feel like you would never use it even though you could use it because that's the subtext. Because That's powerful. Um, yeah. you should never, it should never cross your mind to not use it. Just like it should never cross your mind to kill somebody. I mean, I would never walk in a room and pronounce it. Somebody. You know, I would never murder somebody. Well, well, okay, well that's would. awesome. I'm, I mean, yeah, I mean, and I, I also don't feel the need to announce that to people. And so it's very interesting when you have those kind of conversations with people, because you always kind of want to interrogate, well, what made you feel the need to tell me that? Because the only thing that could make you feel the need to tell me that is you feeling like you are giving up something that you that belonged to you in the first place. Right. right? That you and should have rights to the, in the first place. And, and that's the problem. And that in and of itself is the essence of whiteness. The idea that there is a possessory power to denigrate blackness. That is what the N word in the mouth of a white person represents is the possessory power to denigrate blackness. And that is what does not belong to you. And what you also don't get is an opinion about how I choose to use it intraracially. Because that is not an apples to apples comparison. It is not. It is not an apples to apples comparison. So the, the, the power of the word in the mouth of the oppressor versus the intraracial usage between people of the same people group, it is not the same. It is and not. And in the same way that I do not have the right to insert myself into a dispute between family members in a household and I need to mind my Black-owned business, <laughs> you need to mind your business. What, what Black people have the right to feel differently about the use of the N-word. We are not a monolith. We don't have to agree. We don't. But no, 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 ma'am. Not at all. We don't have to agree about that. Right. Black people have the right to feel differently about it. We have the right to disagree passionately, debate it at the spade table, at the family reunion. Use it, but not use person, it. Y- yes. But yeah. what a white person should never do is offer their two cents. Facts. And that's, or offer their two cents or feel like they should have access because they're down, you know. Correct. Because there's that part. And so, yeah, I love it. I love it. This has been a great conversation. I could go on and on. Because there's so much, there's so much nuance. There's so many things that you hit on that are not, like, there's so, there's so much to this word that is unspoken that covers so much more than the word itself. And that's just mm-hmm. like white people saying, I don't see color. They weaponize not seeing color. Well, you have had every privilege to not see color because color does not impact you in the way that it impacts me. So, yay, you don't see color, which you should see because color was the creation of whiteness. Culture was the creation of the king, of, of, the, of God, but color was the creation of whiteness. So you, you get to choose to now not see it. Okay. Well, it's interesting because whenever people tell me they don't see color, I believe them because right. they see what the colors represent. Because that's what whiteness teach they that's what whiteness teaches you to do. So white represents power, black Absolutely. represents you know the, the dispossession dispossession right. So yeah, you you probably don't. You see what you are taught that the color represents. So I absolutely believe. Oh, that's good. Color. That's why I stay away from them because I'm right. Believe, I believe. That's so yeah, good. I Mm. I believe you. I believe you. (laughs) Yeah, I believe you. (laughs) That's powerful. So we have an audience of probably 15,000 white people who are listening to you right now. And so as we kind of draw this to a close, I just want to give you a chance to speak from your heart to the audience what you would want them to take away from this conversation, maybe either just summarizing or just like how can white people love 
black people in light of what you've shared? Are there any active steps that white people can take? Or just what, what would you like to send them off with? One thing I would say is that if we think about what you're talking about when you talk about what it looks like to love, I think that one of the most loving things that our white brothers and sisters can do is to actively divest from the power mantle that the privilege of whiteness bestows on you by posturing yourself in a place of humility. And I think what that looks like is, is by consciously saying that the system has conferred on me the power in this situation to believe or assume that I am entitled to X, Y, and Z. Or in this case, for example, we're talking about the game, that I am entitled to use whatever words I choose to use. Because I'm a lawyer, I can tell you that the First Amendment confers on you the right to use whatever words you want to use. And whiteness emboldens that power. Whiteness says that you have that right. That is what that mantle of power confers. And part of the ways that we divest from whiteness, that we deconstruct the system that whiteness confers, is by deciding that that power that was given to you yeah. is not power that was yours to possess. Because it was power that was taken from others. So it was power given at the expense of disempowering others. And so to be mindful of that when we have these kind of conversations and, and to be always asking yourself, am I given this power at the expense of other people? And if so, to always actively choose to divest from any system of power that empowers you at the expense of somebody else. And I think the N-word is a perfect example of that. So can you use the word? Yes. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, legally, yes. Factually, yes. But is that a power that you have at the expense of somebody else, at the expense and off the commodifying of Black bodies throughout history, throughout human trafficking? Yes, it is. Mm. And so if you truly want to dismantle systems of oppression, if you truly want to lay down the mantle of whiteness, then I urge you to lay down that power because it truly is power that was stolen and it is power that does not belong to you. And in a posture of humility, I ask you as an act of love to give it back to those to whom it belongs. That's powerful. That's powerful. So, Amber, how can we support you, sis? Well, you all can find me on Brokish. It's a podcast that I co-host with one of my girlfriends, Erica Brown, who is a financial executive. And we are just talking about the ways that America has tried to break Black Americans by bamboozling us. But we keep on rising. And so we released episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can find us on Instagram at Brokish Podcast, B-R-O-K-E-I-S-H Podcast or www.brokish.com. And so, yeah, that's where you can find us or you can find me on Instagram at Amber W. Booker. So that's it. All right. We got you, sis. We appreciate you coming and speaking. I knew you were going to bring it, and you did. Thank you so much. Oh, this was fun. This was fun. Yes, indeed. I'm going to have to look up some of those words you were saying, though. <laughs> <laughs> look, you too, really words. Bila, I'm on my phone like, oh. you were, You're saying some words. And I was like, ah, I think I know what that is. Okay, I know the first Oxford, few letters of that one. Yeah. Webster. Well, sis, have a wonderful rest of your day or evening, and thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. It's just $5 a month and we did just add a new Facebook group for our patrons only. On our next episode, we will be discussing gentrification. We'll leave you with this quote from Ola Joseph. Diversity is not about how we differ. Diversity is about embracing one another's uniqueness. Thank you.